Well, good morning and welcome to the Oaks Church. My name is Terry Lee. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, I see some new faces, and so I want to thank you for joining us. If you are a guest with us, uh, whether gathering here was a little bit safer for you this morning with the way that the roads are or uh, because you came with a friend, I just want you to know that we are really glad that you're here as our guest, whether you've been visiting for a couple weeks or this is your first Sunday. Uh, would love for you to come by the Connect table at the end of our gathering. Just pick up a small gift bag that uh, is from our church family to you just to let you know that we're thankful that you worshiped with us this morning. Now we are in Mark 13, so if you are a, a first-time guest, what a week to, uh, to check out our church and to go through the book of Mark with us. Um, if, if you're here every week, you know that we've been studying through the book of Mark for um, a couple years, just taking it a section at a time as we go, and we come to a rather perplexing passage this morning, uh, a passage that you know, is, is hotly debated, and at the same time, uh, my desire is to focus on some of the things that are uh, the clearest in this text, and then to present to you just some faithful ways that people have interpreted this passage in different ways with the goal of glorifying Christ through it all. Uh, whenever we think about end times, I think a lot of us maybe land in, in different places. Maybe we have a really strong view. Maybe some of us don't really think about it much. Uh, as I was studying this passage this week, I was reminded of a conversation that I had whenever I was in seminary. So many of you know, some of you might not, that for my first two years of seminary in Louisville, I actually worked in retail. Uh, I worked at Gap at the Oxmoor Mall. And so, uh, you know, I applied for a lot of jobs that I thought that I might be uh, better suited for, you know, before we moved to Louisville from Florida. I did um, a lot of painting with my dad, you know, putting in irrigation systems, that kind of thing. So I was thinking, you know, uh, maybe that would be more where I would end up and yet took the first opportunity that came my way. And so I uh, found myself at the gap, you know, throughout the week while I was trying to memorize Greek vocab and all that kind of stuff. Now, Here's the deal. Uh, I would love to talk about how that job led to the staff position that I was at on a church, all that kind of stuff. We can talk about God's provision and faithfulness. That's not where I'm going with this story. All right, so we got to know uh, a lot of the other employees that worked around the mall as those who worked in retail, because people would take their lunch break or their 15-minute break, and then they would, you know, shop around at other stores, just come by, and there were several usuals. So uh, there was one woman who had come by. She worked at Macy's, you know, uh, just a couple stores down. And uh, she would come by, you know, we got to know each other. She would show me pictures of her grandkids. We'd talk about the latest news. She would complain about her coworkers or something, you know, just that kind of thing. And then she found out that I was a seminary student. And once she found out that I was a seminary student, all she wanted to talk about was eschatology, the end times, the last days. And, and I'm not talking about like the simple belief that Jesus will one day return. I'm talking about microchips and charts and which political figure could possibly be the Antichrist and like all, all of this, okay? And so I'm just like, you know, minding my own business, folding skinny jeans, and then we're in like a heated debate about the millennium. Uh, you know, so, so one day she said to me, she said, it's hard to find a good church because there is nothing more important at a church than what they believe about the end times. And so I'm like, okay, uh, you know, so, so that's, that's, that's where some people are at. Uh, and and I, I give you that story to just, you know, describe where some people are at on this spectrum of talking about the end times. Maybe you would agree with, you know, my fellow retail employee, uh, and you would say, yes, like this, this is one of the most important things. Um, for you, maybe it's something that's just kind of like an obsession. 
And, and what I would say is, if, if that's where you're at, this should not be something that creates division within the church. Uh, I think there are things that Scripture is very clear about whenever it comes to what will happen in the last days and the return of Christ. But I think there are also some things we should hold really open-handed because there are faithful ways to interpret the Bible and to be faithful in Scripture uh, that might bring you to kind of different conclusions. Now, some of you, whenever you think about the last days, the return of Christ, uh, maybe it's really scary, Okay. Maybe you grew up in the era where like Tim LaHaye's Left Behind book series was like the thing. Maybe you saw the Nicolas Cage version of that movie and you're just thinking, please let me be dead and gone before any of this happens. All right. So this, it's like terrifying to you. Others of you, you're just confused. Okay. So you're thinking, I have read through Revelation. Uh, I've heard people talk about different millennial views. And I'm just, you know, really convinced at this point, I'm not going to figure any of it out. So, so what's the point? I'm just not even going to try, not even going to worry about it. I'll just skim through Mark 13 and, and go on about my business. Other people, you would say, it's, it's not worth my time or energy. You know, maybe, maybe that's where you're at as a Christian. You'd say, you know, uh, this morning in systematic theology, the equip class, we studied the attributes of God. Like that's like such an amazing thing to learn about. Uh, there are things like the doctrine of salvation, where you know, you're saved by grace through faith, not by works. There is the doctrine of the Trinity. And you'd say, you know what? There are so many other things to learn about the character of God and in Scripture than, you know, that's going to kind of be the last book on my shelf that I touch. And, and so if, if that's where you're at, I want to come to you and say, hey, I, I do think that matters of salvation uh, take, take priority. And at the same time, if God has told you in his word things about what he has in store for the future, then, then why wouldn't you want to deepen your understanding of the character of God? I mean, what we're, what we're ultimately leaning into as we study the last things is that there is a God whose divine plan cannot be thwarted by suffering or sin or any attempt of evil. Like, this makes much of the character of God. And so I come to you and say, I, we're not going to know it all. And at the same time, there are truths here that, that are worth our, our attention and focus. Um, some of you, you, you might say, you know what, I'm, I'm just, you know, unconcerned. Uh, I think this could possibly be where uh, a, lot of, a lot of the world that would say, I don't follow Christ and I'm not a Christian. Maybe, maybe that's where they're at. Maybe that's where you're at this morning. You say, you know what, I'm kind of thinking about what's going on this week. Uh, man, I've got enough to, to stress me out uh, with just what's on my to-do list today. The last thing that I need to be worried about is what could possibly happen a thousand years from now. And I, and I think that it's really easy to be there. I think even Christians can, can drift there and just be so focused on right now um, without really giving attention to the fact that one day uh, the, the heavens will, will open, Christ will return, and every single person will stand before Christ as judge and give an account for their life. And so I say that to say, man, we're probably all at different places. Uh, I think I find myself maybe in a couple different places, even in one week, whenever I think about the last days. And so recognizing that we're probably all coming in at a different starting place. I hope to unify us under the, under the word of God. And that doesn't mean that maybe we'll all hold like the same particular view as to how all of this will shake out. Uh, my desire in, in unifying us under the word of God is ultimately to lead us to worship. That, that's the goal of every sermon. That's the goal of every time you open your Bible is ultimately to lead you to worship. That, that you would say, God is infinite and omnipotent. 
And the reason that Christ can, can with such great detail and clarity describe what was yet to happen to his disciples is because he, he's the author of it all. He's the one who stands above with authority over it all. This, this leads us to live with an unshakable hope, to see that regardless of, of what might come tomorrow or 10 years from now, that Christ is on his throne and he is sovereign over the entire plan of creation. For the Christian, we can look at a passage like this and, and think about difficult times, days of suffering, and the fact that ultimately we will stand before Christ one day with great confidence, knowing that whenever we give an account for our life, ultimately we will be pointing to the life of Christ and saying, I am a sinner. And I was separated from God. But thanks be to Christ, my Lord and Savior, who died on the cross to pay for my sins so that I could stand blameless before the Father and be received and not rejected. Uh, for those of us who, who look at a passage like this and, and perhaps we, we wonder, you know, what, what, what does this mean for, for the events that we see going on in the world in different places, the news headlines? It, it enables us to have I hope that perseveres to say, you know what? One day Christ will come and he will judge rightly. One day he will come and completely do away with sin, uh, the, the work of Satan and death altogether. As the Jesus Storybook Bible puts it, one day all sad things will become untrue. One day Christ will judge the living and the dead and he promises to make all things new. So hopefully I've, I've convinced you, maybe in, in the first couple minutes here, to stick with me for the next 40, because uh, we're going to get into some, uh, some, some things that are, are technical and at the same time, man, uh, so great to come alongside the disciples and hear the way that, that Christ talks about the time to come. The, the most obvious command in this text is, is one that has become our main point for this morning, and it is this. Stay spiritually awake for the day of Christ's return. Stay spiritually awake for the day of Christ's return. Now, as I said last week, uh, this passage in Mark 13 is famously called the Olivet Discourse because Jesus has this conversation on the Mount of Olives. They're looking at the temple over the Kidron Valley. And you may remember that one of the disciples made a comment as they were leaving the temple at the beginning of Mark 13. And he said, wow, what beautiful stones. You know, like, look at these great buildings. And then Jesus says, uh, surely there will not be stone left upon stone here. And then he begins to explain, you know, that there will be times of, you know, earthquakes and rumors of wars and famines and the end is not yet, but you will be persecuted. The Holy Spirit will give you the ability to speak. He like cautions them, gives them uh, these things to think through. And, and so the question is, all right, well, what is Jesus teaching us about? Well, he's teaching the disciples about the time of the future, the time that is to come. And he is also teaching us about the future and the time that is to come. Now, many of you know that uh, Mark 13 was in our Bible reading plan for this week. And so we actually read Mark 13 on Wednesday um, with our Bible study group. And one of the guys looked at me and said, man, I sure hope that you can make sense of this Sunday. And I just looked at him and said, me too, you and me both, right? Uh, as I quoted Alistair Begg, one of my favorite preachers last week, he says, uh, the main things are the plain things and the plain things are the main things. 
so whenever you're thinking about, man, what is, what, what is the main thing that, that God wants me to know from this passage? What's going to be the plain thing? Um, and I searched for plain things in this text all week so that I could tell you this is the main thing. Uh, and so, man, what, what does Christ want us to know here? Be spiritually awake for the day of my return. Now, I hope kind of as a sidebar as we walk through this, I can teach you how to faithfully walk through a difficult passage of Scripture. Um, so let's say you come to a text and you're like, man, I, I really don't know what to do with this. Um, there are a couple things that you can, you know, a couple commitments that you can make to faithfully handle a difficult passage. First is to acknowledge that God's word is infallible, but we are not. Right? So whenever we look at this and we're like, okay, here's what's going on in history. Here's you know, the way that John talks in Revelation. Whenever we come to this, we don't say, all right, well, you know, is, is Jesus like saying this right here? You know, no, we come to the text and say, God's word is infallible. There is no error here, but I have a finite IQ and understanding. I'm limited in my ability to fully comprehend this. And so with humility, we say, God's word is infallible, but I am not. Second, we want to consider uh, how to use Scripture to interpret Scripture. And so we'll see some language from Isaiah 13.10. We'll see some language from Daniel 9. And so we want to use Scripture to interpret Scripture and not just our modern understanding of something. Uh, Third, we want to seek to understand the context of the original audience. It's important for us to know that Jesus is speaking to Jewish disciples, and he's telling them about what's to come. It's important that the temple was kind of the center of Jewish life for them, and, and that this was written in the 60s uh, to those who were, you know, living under the Roman Empire, uh, living under the rule of Nero, and that they would receive this book and then watch the events of, of the simple destruction unfold. And, and fourth and finally, uh, to take the genre into account, okay? Um, so in the same way, if, you know, you, you read a lyric from a song that said, you know, um, hit, her teeth were, you know, diamonds or something like that. Like, obviously, this isn't in my notes if that's what I came up with on the fly, right? Um, but, but it's like, I was thinking about this this morning. It's like, well, you wouldn't say like, wow, that would be a strange looking person. You'd say, no, this is like poetic genre of lyrics and music lend itself to being interpreted in, in that way. And so this is a narrative passage in a gospel and at the same time, we recognize some apocalyptic uh, language where Jesus is drawing on prophets. And so that helps us interpret some of the things that we see here as well. Now, I, I love Acts 17, where Paul commends the church that's in Berea, because everything that they hear him preaching, they then examine the scriptures and take a closer look at it. And so that's what I'm saying. I'm going to present to you, you know, m- my best take on it, some, some things that, you know, I ran across this week that I feel like would be helpful for you. And then I'm going to say, study this passage for yourself. Don't don't just take my word for it, you know, uh, dig into God's word and study the scriptures. So with all of that being said, let's look at Mark 13 verses 14 through 37. And uh, let's start out by just reading 14 through 23. God's word says, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. 
And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. All right, I want to give you three views, three categories uh, that people have whenever they look at Mark 13. The first one would be the historical view. So someone that holds the historical view would say, all of the events that are described in Mark 13 took place uh, during the time period of 66 to 70 AD when the Roman general Titus came in and destroyed the temple. Like that, that is everything that Jesus is talking about here. Um, the eschatological view would say everything that we read in Mark 13 is still to come. All right, so the, the tribulation, these things that are happening, what is described, it's all going to happen in the last days right before Christ's return. Now, the combination view says, whenever I look at history, whenever I look at the historical account, I see that these things, uh, many of them unfolded in the days of, you know, the, the temple being destroyed, whenever, you know, the Roman general Titus came into the city of Jerusalem, and other people, and, and at the same time, they would say, but I still see passages, you know, like in 2 Thessalonians 2, where there's this man of lawlessness, that this stuff is still to come. You know, there are parts of this, and I'll kind of point them out to you, where we'd say, all right, this really looks like this is probably what took place in 70 AD, and then this is really, you know, something that seems like it is still to come in some future historical moment. Uh, now, I'll say, I, I lean toward the combination view. I see the merit in both of the other views, and I don't think that this is a thing to where it's like equivalent with the virgin birth or, you know, how people are saved. And so I hold this open-handedly. And so I'm just going to walk through this, present a couple of the views. And then um, whenever we get to the very end, I'm going to say, all right, here is like the basic agreements that every Christian should have whenever it comes to thinking about the last days and the end times. Sound good? Great. All right, let's go. All right, first I want to uh, look at the abomination of desolation. That's our first observation here whenever we look at this text. The abomination of desolation. Now, what do these words abomination of desolation mean? Well, the word abomination is used over a hundred times in scripture, and it just describes any sin. Uh, you know, it, it, it can be anything from uh, sexual sin to child sacrifice. It's something that goes directly against the character of God and the command of God. Now, the abomination of desolation is something specific. It is something that profanes something that is holy to God. Now, remember I said we want to use scripture to interpret scripture. Well, Daniel 9 is the first time that we see this event referred to as the abomination of desolation. That's why in Matthew 24, Matthew's parallel account with this passage, he says, you know, as, as you understand the book of Daniel, think about the abomination of desolation. And so, so here we kind of have a way to, to think through this. So that this is, you know, a, a specific moment in which there is someone who desecrates something that is holy to God by committing a sin in that place. Mark here says, let the reader understand. And we say back to Mark, we are trying. Okay, so, so we look at this and we say, all right, well, most scholars are unanimous in believing that the abomination of desolation that Daniel mentions took place and was fulfilled by a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes in 167 BC, all right? So roughly 200 years before Jesus is saying this. So, so we would say, okay, well, uh, did the abomination of desolation already occur? 
because this guy Antiochus Epiphanes, he's a Seleucid king. He goes into the temple. He creates an altar to Zeus and then starts sacrificing pigs, an unclean animal, in worship of Zeus. All right, so we'd say, you know what? That checks all the boxes of an abomination of desolation, a, a sin that is directly going against God and desecrating something that is holy to God being the temple. Now, here's the interesting thing. The way that Jesus talks about this here, he's talking about it as in it's something that will happen. So he says, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So he's talking about something that is still to come. Now, many people believe that, uh, as sometimes happens with prophecy, this has multiple fulfillments. And so there was a moment in which an abomination of desolation took place uh, through Antiochus Epiphanes in 167 BC. That we also see uh, this prophecy of Jesus here come to pass in 70 AD with the Roman general Titus, whenever you know, the temple is actually destroyed and kind of raised to the ground. Uh, and then whenever we look at you know, a passage like 2 Thessalonians 2.4 and read that there is this man of lawlessness who is to come, that we see this pattern will once again be fulfilled in the last days just before the return of Christ. And so we can kind of take what Jesus is saying here and hold it together. Now, at the same time, I do want to look at the history of what took place in 70 AD because, because I believe that some of the specific details that Jesus mentions here really help us understand what happened and also help us see how this prophecy was fulfilled in the, the days of Christ, even if partially. Now, we, we looked at verses 1 through 13 last week. We heard Jesus say there would not be one stone left upon another when the temple is destroyed. And just as Jesus said, it took place. Uh, the temple was completely destroyed. Uh, people fled the city of Jerusalem. It was just an absolute, um, like, like terrible thing. I'll, I'll give you some of the details here in a moment. Jesus says, let them flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. Uh, during the time period that Jesus is saying this, most of the architecture of the houses were flat-roofed, and so they were interconnected. You'd be able to go from house to house, kind of on the rooftop, to get to the city gates and to be able to flee to the mountains. Uh, he says, don't even go down into the house to grab anything, to take your cloak. Flee quickly whenever you see this happening, whenever you see this abomination coming, whenever you see the, the, the tribulation of this time period taking place. Don't, don't stay and fight for an earthly kingdom. That's not the kingdom that God is establishing here. He says, run. Now it's interesting whenever you look at church historians like Eusebius, and, and they say uh, whenever, whenever the general Titus was entering the city, Christians thought about this and they, they fled to the mountains of Pella around Jerusalem. Um, it, it's also interesting whenever you hear the events described from this time period by Jewish historian Josephus. Now, I, I have notes with you that I could share on this. Some things that I read this week were just too like unbearable to even talk about. But whenever you hear the way that um, you know the the Romans came into the city of Jerusalem, it was a, a gruesome attack in which they did not hold back at all. Uh, the Jewish historian. Josephus uh, described the, the horrors of the Roman siege of Jerusalem, saying that uh, they, there were so many Jews crucified in the city that the Romans ran out of wood for crosses. 
they, were, they were just so frustrated with kind of this, this last stronghold uh, that the Jews had that they just went in with just unbelievable force. We read that within the city there was disease, murder, starvation, and, and the famine and starvation got so bad that um, parents made the choice to, uh, to kill their own children to eat them. And that was just, I mean, to hear these accounts, it's, it's just unbelievable the kind of suffering that was taking place. Uh, Josephus estimates that 1.1 million people within the city were killed during that time. Now, I want you to consider the three views that, that we laid out for a moment. Now, those were, who are in the historical view would say, okay, well, all of this clearly took place uh, in the time of 66 to 70 AD, just as described here in this passage. Those who hold more of the eschatological view would say, um, that seems like a great tribulation, but I'm not sure if, you know, as uh, verse 20 says, that that would be the worst tribulation that would ever occur and would ever be that that moment could, could be equated to that time period. And so they're saying this is a day that is still coming when there's a future tribulation right before Christ returns. Uh, the combination view would say, I, I see the historical evidence here and what actually took place, the atrocities that occurred, uh, but I also hold to what I see in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 10, that there will be a man of lawlessness, so that there will be a time of, of great tribulation before Christ returns. And so we hold these things together, recognizing that just because something has been fulfilled once does not mean it could be fulfilled again, and that this could be a type or pattern for the way that these kind of things take place. Now, in verse 20, what does Jesus say? He said, If the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Now, historical side of things. Um, I'm not sure if this is the most helpful thing for you, but this is the best way to look at this passage and to just present you the evidence of, of the way that people kind of hold history books and the Bible together, um, but then also hold the rest of the Bible and what is to come together. So historically, I mean, what does it mean that the days were cut short? Well, this was a relatively short siege. Uh, so it lasted for five months. And so while the magnitude of it was just unimaginable, we also recognize that compared to other sieges during that time period, it was relatively short. And so perhaps God cut short the days so that those who fled from the city uh, would not have to continue to live life on the run, but that they would be able to, you know, kind of rest again. Now, others would say that this is referring to, you know, a day in which the church faces great tribulation and Christians are removed by a rapture or, you know, uh, this, this moment in which the, you know, there is this end, the days are cut short for those who are experiencing this kind of tribulation. Um, I, I think that you can, you can look at this passage and say, here's the timeless principle. The Lord will enable us to endure through suffering so that he may get glory and so that the gospel would be made known. We look at this and I mean, I just approach this text with humility and say, man, I, I wish I understood it better. Like it's, it's hard for me to stand here as the one who is leading and teaching our church and say, man, this is like, this is just so above me. And so what do I do? I, I look to the character of God and say, and he will enable his elect to endure. There's, there's no suffering that we will face, be it now or in some moment in the last days that Christ will not mercifully enable us to endure for his glory, that the gospel would be made known. We see in verses 21 through 22, Christ repeats the warning. He says, 
He, he says, if someone says, look, here's the Christ, look, there he is, don't believe it. False Christ, false prophets will arise, they'll perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. He says, he says don't be led astray by those who are false. Don't be led astray by those who uh, would, would try to twist the truth. In verse 23, Jesus gives a command. He explains why he has told them this, so that they would be on guard. This is the plain thing, right? Why has Jesus told his disciples this? So that they would not be surprised when suffering comes. That whenever they face difficulty, whenever they face persecution, they wouldn't be rattled to the point in which it causes them to wonder, is God still faithful? Is Christ still on his throne? Is the Lord still good? Does he still keep his promises? That they would be able to remember this conversation and say, Christ is on his throne. In fact, he told us this day would come. He told us to be on guard for this moment. That as suffering and persecution comes, as we face great trial, we would be able to cling to the gospel when we have nothing else that people would behold the treasure of Christ through us. And so that's what we see here. Now, now what happens next? Well, well here we see uh, that, that Christ is going to talk about the day in which he returns. And so the second observation from this passage is the day of Christ's return. I want to read through verses 24 through 27, then we'll unpack it a little bit. We read, But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Now, this is where I think uh, the historical view is hard to, to continue to grip tightly. And I think perhaps if it was not for this section, I would say I might lean a little bit more there. But whenever you get to this passage, it seems like Christ is describing the day that he literally returns and it is his second coming. Now, some people would, you know, read the way that Christ describes his, you know, uh, coming in glory here. And they would say, uh, that Christ is speaking prophetically. And so, you know, this would be a moment in which it's not seeing Christ in, in glory, literally with their eyes, but perceiving that Christ is the Son of Man who reigns in glory. They actually point to Mark 14, 62 in the next passage, next chapter, where Jesus is speaking to the high priest. And he says, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And so they would say, well, look, Jesus told the high priest that one day the high priest would perceive that, that he is Lord over all. And so the moment in which the temple that this religious priest held dear crumbled to the ground, he would realize Jesus truly is the son of God. And so that's the way that they would hold to that passage and interpret it so that they can cling to that view. Um, I, I mean, people are smarter than me, right? Maybe, maybe that's plausible. But whenever I read that you will see the, the Son of Man coming in clouds of glory, I believe that Jesus is talking about his literal second coming here. Uh, another reason that I believe that is because you read the language of the angels going to the four corners of the earth and gathering God's people together. Uh, some people, you know, that hold to the historical view would say that that is messengers, those who would go and share the gospel. Uh, I come to this passage and, and think, and I, this, these are angels, and it's going to be really hard to miss when that happens. And I just don't think that that already took place. 
Whenever you read through the Old Testament, you also find this same language in Zechariah 2.10 and um, in Isaiah 45.22, where it says that uh, in, in the last days, God will gather his people from all over the earth. Uh, in Isaiah 13.10, you read about the you know, sun darkening, the moon not giving its light, the stars falling. So uh, there's this language of the last days that I, that I just don't think we could say, well, this has already happened, which uh, leads me to believe, man, some of the things that we've read uh, seem to have taken place. Uh, some of the things that Jesus is saying here seem to still be forthcoming in the future. So now the question we're all wondering, all right, well, what is the timing of Christ's return? He gives us an object lesson in verses 28 through 31. He says, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now, Jesus here is giving this object lesson, the timing of Christ's return. is this third observation we see. And he, he points to the fig tree. Uh, we've seen the fig tree before, haven't we? We read about it in Mark 11. Now, in that passage, Jesus refers to the fig tree and compares them to Israel. I personally don't think that that is the same connection that he is making here, uh, but great people disagree on that. I think that here he is just making an observation about timing. All right, so whenever the winter comes, what happens? Well, all the leaves fall off the fig tree. Now, in late spring, the leaves begin to bloom again, and that tells you it's late spring and it's almost summertime. Well, Jesus is saying here, look at the fig tree. Like, whenever, whenever you see the leaves bloom, it tells you that it is almost summertime. And, and so whenever you see these things taking place, abomination of desolation, whenever you see the sun and the moon darken, whenever you see, you know, the, the heaven split, angels going out, like, you know, the Son of Man is coming, and it is the last time. Uh, that's why he says, don't listen to people who say, well, well, here is Christ, or, you know, there is Christ. Jesus says, when I come back, you are going to know it. Like it won't happen in, you know, uh, some, some small, you know, place where people are wondering like, oh, did Jesus come back or not? No, it, it is going to be obvious when Christ's return. And so here he says, when you see these things, you will know that these things are taking place and that he is near at the very gates. Um, much of this sermon has probably felt like a multiple choice test. So I'll give you a couple other interpretive options here. When it says he is near, it could be talking about the abomination of desolation. It could be talking about Christ who is coming uh, in his second coming. You could also say, well, uh, this noun, this masculine noun should be translated in a gender neutral way. And so it could just be the last days. In either case, Jesus is saying, you will know when the last days are here. He says, surely this generation will not pass away until this takes place. Well, how do we interpret that? Well, some people would say uh, that this generation is speaking of those who were physically living during the time of Christ and, you know, they saw it happen whenever the, the temple was destroyed. Others would say this is the generation that will be alive in those last days when the sun is dark and the moon is dark and the stars fall. Others would say the, the word generation is actually just referring to uh, the Jewish race in its entirety. And the semantic range of the word generation allows for that, so that would be okay. And then the fourth view uh, would be that 
that Jesus literally returned in that generation. And so we'd say, okay, well, the fourth view uh, can't be it because Jesus didn't return. His second coming hasn't already happened. And then we'd say the third views are, are plausible. You might have, have your particular one, but e- any of them would be faithful to the scriptures. Now, Jesus uh, does, does say this to the disciples. My words will not pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away. What can you trust? And what all this is going on? My words, cling to my words. And, we're, and, and then he finally gives this command. Uh, we've been searching for perhaps the, the plain things in this text, and here it is in verses 32 through 37. Jesus says, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Here Jesus returns to the question that the disciples asked to begin with. What, what will we know? When, when will it happen? What will be the sign? And he's, he's answering it and saying, no one knows the day or the hour. The angels don't know. He says, I don't know. Well, what do we do with that? Well, we see here that Christ is, you know, is God, right? He's the second person of the Trinity. How can he say this? Well, we see that in his incarnation, in his incarnation, he didn't give up his uh, divine nature, but in humility, he does not rely on his omniscience during his time on earth in his incarnate form. That, that he says, you know what, I, I, don't, I don't know the time. I'm, I'm trusting, uh, you know, the will of God. In his omniscience, he knows, right, this is perplexing. Um, and, and as he humbles himself to be like us, here he's saying, I, I don't know the day or the hour. What does that mean for us? That we should not speculate about the day or the hour, but that we should be ready for Christ's return. I do think in this passage, Christ has kindly given us three things that will point to the day of his return. Here they are. First, he says that you can expect wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, and famines. We saw that last week. But what does he say? That the end will not be yet. All right? You, you'll see that forever. Okay? Then what does he say? That there will be an abomination of desolation that will occur. All right, now we're about to get into why that's tricky here in just a second. And then he says, you will see the Son of Man coming, and then you will know the last days are here. Now here is why that is so important. Because we must stay alert every second knowing that Christ can return in any moment. Maybe you're sitting here thinking, okay, well, if all of that has to take place, a lot of this seems future, it seems like the last days are something I really shouldn't be worried about right now, right? I've got enough going on. I don't need to be worried about the last days. What if I told you that based upon the vocabulary of Scripture, we are living in the last days right now? Now, I am not telling you that according to my watch and a couple charts that I keep in my basement, Jesus is coming back this afternoon. What I am saying is that based upon what Scripture says, we are living in the last days right now. Because Peter says in 1 Peter 1.20, Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. He, he's referring to the birth of Christ as something that took place in the last times. Hebrews 1.2 describes the coming of Christ as the way that God has chosen to speak to us in the last days. 
Acts 2.17 talks about the day of Pentecost, the day that the Holy Spirit descended on the church. And it says that this was just as Joel the prophet said would take place in the last days. Maybe you're thinking, okay, well, well what about a specific you know, verse that references the Antichrist? And you know, maybe like the last hour whenever all of this would take place. Well, listen to John, the way that he wrote to the church 2,000 years ago. 1 John 2.18, he says, children, it is the last hour And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Now, why do I say that to you? Because that means that if we use the language of Scripture, we can confidently say that for the last 2,000 years, we've been living in the last hour. Which means that according to the words of Jesus, he could come in five minutes, five decades, or 5,000 years The response that we have to a text like this is to stay alert and be ready for his return, to stay awake. And here we get to the plain things of this text. Jesus cautions his disciples to stay on guard here. I think it's helpful to read the account of Matthew 24 in light of this because Matthew compares this to the days of Noah. Now, what was going on in the days of Noah? Well, people were living their life like normal. You know, they'd walk out of their house, they'd see Noah building this big boat, and they're like, well, that's weird, it's never rained before, he says it will. You know, then they're like doing their own thing, completely ignoring it. And what happened? At a moment that was immediate and unexpected, the flood waters came. And, and the message of rescue that they had been ignoring uh, the entire time was, was immediately the only way to be saved. And in that moment, it was too late. Those who were within the boat were rescued. Those who trusted God were rescued. And those who did not trust God and believe this word of warning understood its value when it was too late. What Jesus is saying to each person in the room is regardless of what your view is or wherever you're at on the spectrum from unconcerned to terrified to obsessed, be ready because Christ will return. Think about those around you. Are they ready? Jesus says, stay awake. And in the book of Matthew, again, he says, it's like a thief in the night. A thief doesn't come to like, you know, like call and schedule their burglary. Like, hey, you know, like when are you gonna be out this week? No, they come unexpected. And Jesus says, that's what the return of Christ is going to be like. He uses a third analogy here saying that it's like a doorkeeper and and the master goes away and the doorkeeper has one sole responsibility and that is to be awake and to be ready for its master's, his master's arrival. So you be awake, stay alert. Then then just to to point to us who who would read this text, these words of Jesus thousands of years later, Jesus says in verse 37, what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. What I say to you, I say to all, I say to all, stay awake. Maybe some of you have been putting this off and you're like, I don't want to think about the last days. I don't want to think about giving an account for my life. And what I would say to you is, perhaps this is the moment that you wake up, that you realize I'm dead in my sins. And unless I cling to Christ and acknowledge that what he did on the cross and in his resurrection was for me to be reconciled to God, that I will be found sleeping on the day of his return. And to you, I'd say, stay awake. For others of you, you're thinking, you know what, I I feel like I've got time to get my priorities right and and to be obedient and to really take, you know, scripture seriously and, you know, like make my life matter in the grand scheme of eternity. And what I would say to you is stay awake. 
This, this passage is a shot of caffeine for sleepy believers that would say, yeah, it doesn't really matter if I take my marriage seriously. Like, I think my spouse loves me. And, you know, I mean, I send my kids to Little Oak, so that's basically a good place for them to be discipled. And it doesn't really matter if my dating relationship is holy to God because eventually maybe we'll get married and it won't really matter. And you're, you're thinking all of these things. And Christ here says, stay awake. Wake up. This matters. It matters forever. So maybe you're thinking, okay, it's a lot, right? It's a lot, a lot to take in. So what do we know for certain from Scripture? The Oak Statement of Faith, compiled from Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, says we believe that the end of the world is approaching quickly. On the last day, Christ will descend from heaven, raise the dead from the grave, and bring all people to final judgment. At that time, there will be a solemn separation during which the wicked will be judged and sentenced to endless conduct conscious punishment in hell and the righteous in Christ rewarded with endless conscious joy in the new heavens and new earth. This judgment will fix forever the final state of people in heaven or hell based upon God's unchanging and unchallengeable principles of righteousness. Those belonging to Jesus will have eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth and live in everlasting joy to the glory of God. Right. So if you're a Christian, what do you believe? What do you believe that scripture says? How can you stay awake? What beliefs do you hold dear during this time? We'll walk through a little eschatology 101 in times. Every Christian believes that Jesus will physically return at any moment. I have a watch that has 12 hours on it. This is deceiving because it just makes it look like it would go on forever. In reality, history is more like an hourglass and every second there's a grain of sand dropping to the bottom and at one point Christ will return. Christ will return at any moment. Second, Jesus will return as a conquering king to judge the living and the dead. Right, we're, we're reading this passage and it's happening Tuesday or Wednesday of Passion Week. We just read through the book of Mark. Jesus is coming on a humble donkey. And what do we see in Revelation 19? That he comes as the rider on a white horse, conquering king to judge the living and the dead. Third, the Christian life should be shaped by Christ's return. We should go and share the gospel because of this message that we have been given I love the way that Hebrews 10, 23 through 25 instructs the church to live. It says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What a beautiful privilege that we have as a church family to prepare one another for the day they stand before Christ. We live like this day matters forever. Fourth, each person will one day have a physical bodily resurrection. For those who have chronic pain, disease, and suffering, we look forward to the day that, as 1 Corinthians 15 says, we will be raised to life and restored bodily. Fifth, and finally, each person will receive eternal life with Christ or eternal condemnation. As the scripture memory passage that you have in your seat says in John 3, 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and who does not Obey the Son, shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. There will be a day of judgment of the living and the dead, and you will be judged to everlasting joy in Christ or to eternal conscious punishment in hell. And today is the day to make a decision that lasts forever. Today is the day to say, I, I have made a decision to follow Christ and I commit to it completely. You see, I believe that Mark 13 uh, has application for us now. I also think that it prepares us, the reader, for what we're going to see in chapters 14 through 16. Now, now bear with me for a moment, okay? 
because I think this is very interesting. In Jesus has referred to his body as the temple. It, is this almost helping us to see that there is about to be an abomination of desolation, and it is that Christ, the temple of God, God made known to the world, is going to be crucified, that there is going to be this desolation that takes place, and even in the midst of that, Christ will be raised. We read here that persecution will come, that at midnight you will hear the rooster crow speaking of the master of the house. And isn't it interesting that there is about to be a parallel in which Peter is put on trial before a servant girl and hears a rooster crow? Isn't it interesting that whenever we look at this passage, it reminds us of the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus begs with his disciples multiple times, I'm going to pray, would you please stay awake and pray with me? Stay awake, stay awake, stay awake. And what does he walk over to find? Sleepy disciples. I think Mark is doing here something, something much bigger than what we find in Mark 13. I think he's speaking to every single person that picks up the book of Mark. Because what has he been doing since verse one? He says, behold, the good news of the son of God. The first eight chapters, he lays out how he is the exalted king. The last eight chapters, he lays out how he is the suffering servant. And I think that he wants every single one of us to stand alongside the Roman soldier who sees the crucifixion of Christ and the temple torn and say, behold, he is the son of God. He's speaking to every person who picks up the book of Mark and he's saying, get ready for what you're about to see in chapters 14 through 16. Stay awake so that you can come to the end of this book and make the proclamation, Jesus is the son of God, that he has come to rescue and redeem me, that apart from the work of Christ, I would never be reconciled to God. I would be considered his enemy and damned to hell, but because of what Christ has done, I can have life in his name, no longer be an enemy or an orphan, but called his son or daughter. He wants us to come to this passage and be awake. Say, look at what Christ has done for me. That we would leave Mark 13, not, not with all of these ideas floating around our head about when did this take place? When is this gonna happen? What is going on? But to stay awake for beholding the son of God who came to save the world. And that's where all this is going, right? that one day the heavens will split, Christ will return, we will see him seated on his throne and acknowledge that our faith has become sight. Let's pray.